pitch, swing and a drive. Deep to right field, way up there, way out of here. Goodbye, baseball. Eight strikeout for the King tonight and make it 23 consecutive scoreless innings for Phoenix. Strike three called on the outside corner, and there it is. It's time for the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. Kyle Seager, that just happened. Thank you very much. Now, here's your host, Gary Hill. All right, welcome back, Seattle Mariners Baseball Podcast at Mariners Pod on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Gary Hill Jr. Thanks for being here once again. No game yesterday, so we don't have a game to go over, but we have plenty to preview as the Mariners head out on the road. A ten-game trip against some big offenses. So we'll touch on at least the first part of the trip against Tampa Bay. Also, some pretty cool stuff coming up on this podcast, something you'll enjoy, I think. And bullpen banter is here. I think you always enjoy that. That comes up. Also, a conversation we had uh, going into the last game of the Texas series about the division. Uh, Me, Rick Riz, Aaron Goldsmith, Shannon Dreher, and Evan Grant, who's fantastic. He covers the Rangers. So kind of a broad view of the division. Mariners only have three more games in the division until the All-Star break. A three-game series against the Astros. That's it. So we'll be watching Texas from afar. We'll be watching Houston from afar. So you don't see the division for a while. So we kind of size up where everyone is at. That conversation comes up. There is a fantastic conversation as well. Aaron Goldsmith talks to the scout who signed Edwin Diaz. It's a great story. Insight, too, on what the scouting world is like, his relationship with Diaz. It's all it's fantastic. It's really, really good. In-depth interview coming up. You'll enjoy that, too. So all of that coming up on the podcast. First things first, the Mariners taking on the Tampa Bay Rays, the first of three. Taiwan Walker takes the hill tonight. 4-10 first pitch. Jake Odorizzi on the mound for Tampa. This is a good matchup. Walker 3-6, 3-4-80 RA was dominant in his last time out. Odorizzi has been outstanding all year, 3-3 with a 3-4-7 ERA. And then Nathan Carnes will take on his old team on Wednesday, 4-10 first pitch. He'll take on Drew Smiley, who was brilliant to start the year, has really struggled since. Smiley's ERA has ballooned to 4.94, which is pretty high considering where it was at the beginning of the season. And then day baseball on Thursday, 10-10 first pitch. Probably won't have a podcast that morning. James Paxton. I think we're all excited to see him again. Him and his 100-mile-per-hour gas and nasty cutter slash slider maneuvering into a slider, taking on TBA. So three games against Tampa. Tampa hitting a ton of homers. We've talked about Mariners and their home runs. Now second in baseball, 94 home runs for the Mariners. Well, Tampa Bay, third most in baseball. They've bashed 90 home runs this season. So we'll see if it turns into a slugfest in Tampa with home runs flying. Should be a very interesting series. Tampa right now, when you take a look at the standings, in last in the East, but they're seven and three in their past ten ball games. Sixteen and sixteen on the road, thirteen and sixteen at home this season, but gaining ground. They're a game back of the Yankees for fourth place and three and a half back of Toronto for third place in the in the division. So they're looking 
to make a climb in the division. They played last against the Houston Astros on Sunday and then beat them 5 nothing. They had an off day yesterday as well. So Tampa in last in the East, but not too far out from climbing into contention uh, in the division with the Yankees in Toronto just ahead of them. Mariners 34-29 and 29 on the season, now four and a half back of the Rangers. Texas lost yesterday as Oakland just went to town 14-5. to Oakland beat Texas yesterday. That series continues. It's weird. Texas 9-1 and against the Astros this year. They've played really well against the Mariners this year as well. But Oakland now 4-0 against the Texas Rangers so far this season. And I don't think Mariner fans would complain if that trend continues, if the M's could get some help from the Oakland A's. So Mariners and Rays tonight, this evening, this afternoon, depending on how you look at it. 4-10 first pitch, Taiwan Walker will take them out. Right now, speaking of Texas and Oakland and the division, here's our conversation about where the division stands. Gary Hill with you, joined by its full house, Aaron Goldsmith, Rick Riz, Shannon Dreher, and we've called on our good friend Evan Grant, covers the Texas Rangers for the Dallas Morning News. And Evan, thanks for being here. We thought this would be a great time. Last game of the series against the Texas Rangers. Mariners won't see much of the division until the All-Star break, uh, just three games against the Astros. That's it. But that would be a good time to take a look at this division. Texas obviously has had a great season through 60 games, tied for their best start in their history. The Mariners, a great start as well. Houston Astros, Angels, Oakland in the mix as well. What is your take on where the division is right now? Well, I, I'm surprised that the Rangers are off to this good of a start given all the issues that, that they went into the season with. Uh, they have played really good baseball and have looked like a, a very deep team because of some of the answers that they've gotten in places where they had question marks, which allowed them to get off to a good start. I, I think that the Seattle club is, is very good. Um, I've, I've been impressed by what I've seen. I think the Astros are a little bit better than they've played, um, but there's some issues, and if Keuchel is not 100%, uh, I, I really think that's a big issue for the Astros to try and overcome. Their pitching doesn't look that deep behind him. Uh, and I don't, I don't see the Angels or, or A's being any kind of factor in this race, with the with the one exception that they could, they could prove spoiler against somebody. The Rangers haven't played well; they've only played one series against the A's, and, and they go there tomorrow, and they haven't played well against Oakland yet. So, um, I, I, I do think it is a three-team race, and I think, uh, I, I think before it's all said and done, we will see the Astros be something of a factor. There's too much good talent there, uh, but the the rotation does concern me. Yeah, I think it's going to be a dogfight the rest of the way, especially with these two clubs right here. Uh, a lot of people outside of baseball didn't know what the Mariners had. We didn't really know how things were going to come together. You know, at spring training, Jerry DePoto, out of 60 guys, brought in 31 new players with to the organization, and they really bonded and, and got together as a team at spring training, got out of the gates, played very well in April, 13-11, played very well in May, 17-11. So this is real. After, you know, 60-plus games, the Mariners, are, I think, are going to be in it all season long with the Texas Rangers. Rangers. And, uh, you know, I think health is the main issue. We saw what happened when Martin went down and Marte, the guys that filled in, you know, tried their best. But uh, these guys are such great athletes. Felix on the deal right now. So I think that's going to be the key the rest of the way. I think these are the two clubs that are going to be with it from now until 
the rest of the year, guys. And the Rangers have their own potential issue right now with Darvish out. We don't know yeah. how long he'll be out. He's going to get examined tomorrow in Texas. Uh, but that they, they had really hoped to negotiate those first six weeks of the season. Did a great job with Cesar Ramos and, and um, A.J. Griffin. They went 7-2 and two in their starts, but they thought now they'd have Darvish back. And if he's going to be out for some length of time, I think it's going to put them right back in the market to go out and try and acquire a, a legitimate starting pitcher. How different is this team with both Profar and Odor and Andrus in this lineup, right? I, it, offensively, it, it looks like a different Rangers team to me now. Uh, it's, it's really hard to explain what I think it is that – that Profar and Mazzara have brought in particular to this lineup. Um, uh, Nomar is the best, most advanced hitting prospect I've seen in 20 years covering the Rangers. Uh, People want to compare him to Juan Gonzalez and Ruben Sierra because they were young kids when they came up and they were outfielders with a lot of power. But this guy's got much better strike zone command. He's got mutter, much mutter, much, much better. <laughs> he's a mutter. He is a mutter. You know? <laughs> but he's, he's got really good control of the strike zone and got the ability to make adjustments to pitchers. And, and he's starting to see guys a second time and still doing more than just holding his own up there. Profar was the big mystery because he was out two years and didn't know what didn't know what how was that was going to impact his development. Didn't know if there really was room for him because all we were told going in into the season was that he was going to play shortstop, going to play shortstop. All of a sudden, they had a, a short-term need at second base. Went right into the mix at second base. Has played great defense when he's played second base. Uh, and now he's playing third base, which I thought would be a stretch for him with his shoulder situation. And he's, he's played it well there, too. So uh, he has given a real lift at the top of the lineup. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when Sinchu Chu comes back probably tomorrow. I think they're going to have to reconfigure the top of the lineup a little bit. But uh, he and Mazzara and what they've brought in terms of giving this team depth solutions when they've had real issues at the beginning of the year, uh, it's, it's made an, an incredible difference, I think, for, for this team being a 500 team and, and having control of the division right now. Now, Rick brought up Felix being on the disabled list. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating about the American League West here in the first half of the season is what has gone on with the Aces for each respective club. Felix on the DL, and it looks like he will be on the disabled list for a little while longer to go. Dallas Keuchel, the reigning Cy Young winner, leading the league in earned runs. He's coughed up 50 of them. Garrett Richards has made just a handful of starts on the disabled list, of course. Uh, Rich Hill, who is looking like the ace of the division, he's now on the disabled list with a groin injury. Sonny Gray, although two really good starts to begin this month, and ERA pushing five and a half nonetheless. Uh, Right now, the lowest ERA among an American League West starting pitcher is Colby Lewis. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I don't want to say that again, but Colby Lewis has the lowest did. ERA. He's got a three-even ERA it, among it, active pitchers, starting pitchers in the, in the West. It's amazing. He, he really does appear to be bionic. And um, this hip surgery that he had two years ago has given him, has given him more life. I think it made him a little bit more mobile. Then uh, uh, and, and add a little bit of life to his fastball and, and, and his slider. And then last year, he, he put on some weight and really had some problems with the knee, lost 25 pounds and had knee surgery this past year. He's moving better than he ever has. And here he is at age 37 with a really good idea of how to pitch and still enough stuff to, to get by. It, it, it's kind of where that X and Y line cross and, and, and you get peak performance. And that's what the Rangers have gotten at a point in time when really I wouldn't have expected that from Colby. I think the big story with the Rangers, you look at them the last couple of years, and 
they've really done a great job at overcoming. I mean, you look at last year, the slow start in April, the injuries along the way. They overcome all that to win the division. This year, same thing. They continue to just find answers. Well, and if, if you want to look to, to the answer situation, I, I think we're, we haven't mentioned the guy who I feel has been the most, the single most important factor on this team this year, and that's Ian Desmond. And he was one of those guys that they were going to plug in for an answer. He was going to plug in for Josh Hamilton when they signed him. Uh, he's done a lot more than that. Delino DeShields struggled in center field. Desmond went to center field, and he's played really good in center field. I thought he made three really strong plays last night going into both gaps, uh, cutting the ball off in the gap, and and also the the running catch in that he made um, in, in extra innings. He's found his swing again. He's been athletic. He's been a presence in the clubhouse. This guy, to me, has been the difference between um, the lineup being a real issue and because you've had Fielder struggle, you've had Moreland struggle, Desmond, after two weeks, got a day off, was really was really going rough, and he has he's returned and hit basically 350 since he's been back in the middle of April, and and, and played a defense that I just did not foresee in, in in a in a position he didn't even work at very much during during spring training. That's why I love the game of baseball. You, you never know what's yeah. going to happen when the season starts. Who would have thought that Safeco Field is now a launching pad, you know, <laughs> right. in, in the game of baseball. We've hit more home runs than any place, any ballpark in baseball. The Mariners have hit uh, 93 home runs on the year. The Mariners can go out and score runs. D- Jerry DePoto has done a great job. Scott Service, a great job inside that dugout to put this team together. It's going to be fun watching these two teams the rest of the way. I think it will be. I really, I, I'm looking forward to this race. Um, I think these are two these are two teams that that play similarly now, and I, I think they've got. Uh, I think, as you mentioned, Scott and Jerry, and I, I want to give Tim Bogar a little bit of credit too because I had him in Texas. Yeah, he's I think he's, he's he's been instrumental in getting the most out of Leonis Martin. Uh, it's going to be a good race the rest of the way. We hear. So many times in the national media, people saying that the Rangers have chips to trade if needed at the deadline. It almost seems inevitable. Is is there a lot of truth to that? It seems like the Rangers farm system almost every season is pretty well stocked. Well, I think in, in some regards, you know, Profar and Mazzara have put themselves in a position where I don't think the Rangers view them as trade pieces now. I think they view them as contributors to the team now and, and going forward. Uh, I think if you want to settle the shortstop situation, you can use Profar as a utility guy the rest of the way. He gets four or five starts a week. And then in the offseason, if you want to, you can try and move Elvis then. Uh, if, if I'm the Rangers, I'm still looking for a a starting pitcher. Um, at one point in time, well, I've always had a man crush on Sonny Gray. Um, Can we clip that? Maybe <laughs> that was wonderful, Evan. <laughs> maybe I maybe I lost a little bit of that when he struggled for a right. month. But um, I think he'd be a great fit for the Rangers, and uh, I like what he brings. Uh, and he's the kind of guy this team would look for: controllable long term, mm-hmm. affordable salary wise. But now, really, the trade piece that, that the Rangers would have to focus on being willing to give up would be Joey Gallo, and. Uh, that's again. That's going to be a tough call for this team to make because I think, in a lot of ways, they see Joey Gallo as being their first baseman next year. Just so long as Andrew Miller doesn't find himself in the division, <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want hey. no part of that. So, if you're the Rangers, you know, and you've got some issues in the bullpen, would you, you would you trade a major piece for Andrew Miller? I would not because 
role, you know, I'm not trading a franchise-type cornerstone player like a Gallo or a Mazzara for a reliever. Uh, if it's a starting pitcher, a little bit different situation. Feel good about Dyson, though? I feel very good about Dyson. I, I don't know how good I feel about him in the clubhouse sometimes because he gives me some strange looks, but uh, <laughs> that's part of Sam's charm. He, uh, <laughs> He is uh, he's he's entertaining and he's been he's been outstanding. And one thing that you know, last night he threw a lot of pitches, but as, since he's gone to the closer role, I think he's averaged about 11 pitches per inning. He's done it efficiently, and so he's been able to come back out the next night and, and be usable again. Thanks a lot, Evan. Great stuff as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. It's always great to be up here on the same day when Aaron's in town. So. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, here it is. Here it is. Thanks for the man crush, Evan. Thanks, Evan. Good having you as always. always. And now time for bullpen banter. Hey, we're back again with another edition of Bullpen Banter. Oh, man. It's good to have you guys back. I am Charlie Furbush, the host. Today, my special guest is the one, the only, Steve Ciszek. How are you, man? Oh, I'm doing phenomenal, especially with my Dayho necklace on. Doing even better. Yeah. I mean, the epic silver from Korea. Beautiful medallions you guys can't see, but... Man, I feel good. I think I think it actually has something to do with how well we're playing as these necklaces. Oh yeah, you know every time Deho brings us a gift, he hits about two or th- you know two or three bombs, and we win by a lot. So keep them coming, Deho. Legend of Deho Lee. Seriously, think there should be a movie or children's book called The Legend of Deho Lee. Right? <laughs> I agree. I, I agree. If it doesn't sell in the United States, it will undoubtedly sell in Korea. Where'd you grow up, man? I grew up in Falmouth, Massachusetts, a little town on Cape Cod. Cape Cod beautiful place spent two summers there what's uh what's one of the coolest things about growing up on cape cod um you know the cape league's one of them for sure growing up with great baseball in your hometown um but uh, you know cape cod's known for their beaches and uh we have old silver beach is one of the nicer beaches on cape cod and we spent a lot of time in my childhood growing up there nice yeah cape cod's pretty cool it's only about three hours from where i grew up also a new englander here from portland maine do you have a Boston accent? What's up with that? Where'd it go? I don't. You know, I went to school in Tennessee. Once I started saying wicked in Tennessee, I got cut quick. You know, I got my legs cut out underneath me. I, I lost my vocab for a while and lost some of the accent for sure. Yeah, that's all right. I know you like lobsters and, you know, going to, down to Fenway Park to play the Red Sox. Yep. Just going down to Fenway Park, parking my car, Camden Yards, all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who was one of your favorite Red Sox players growing up? Uh, I'd have to say Nomar Garcia Parra. You know, playing wiffle ball in the backyard, we'd adjust our imaginary batting gloves every in between every pitch. I mean, you can't do that nowadays because the umpire wants you to stay in the box to make the pace of the game better. But it was just a, that was one of his trademark things and what every kid wanted to do. It was pretty awesome, actually. What's your favorite New England cooked meal? That's a good question. You know, you can't get clam chowder anywhere else like you do from New England. So when I go home, I like to have a a nice cup of clam chowder at a local restaurant maybe in one of my favorite chowders is a place in Wareham that I usually go to and you know which I, technically isn't even on the Cape by the way which technically is not on the Cape but it's close enough yeah. and it has great clam they have great, uh, great clam chowders there so all right that's a good way to stop before you hit the Cape the actual Cape let's just I'm just gonna keep this theme rolling because I want to know one who's your favorite Boston Celtics basketball player of all time oof uh, I'm gonna have to go with Paul Pierce you know that I grew up in the Paul Pierce era you know he was you know, he was there when the team was terrible and fans still kept showing up. And then when, you know, when they brought the big three in, uh, I mean, it was just so much fun to watch those guys work. And, uh, of course, they won, you know, the finals in 07, 07-08 season. It was, it was amazing. It was cool to see uh, Isaiah Thomas throw out that first pitch. He's a little guy. He, he is. Um, you think you can take him one-on-one? Inside on the mini hoop, I could probably take him one-on-one. I think that brings yeah. a whole other dimension. But on the real court, no. Yeah, that's true. For people that don't know this, I don't know. 
If you've taken a look at Steve Ciszek's face recently, he look he looks like unanimous MVP Steph Curry. Uh, put a face by face; they look just alike. What do you got to say about that? Yeah, you know, I've, I've been told that a few times now, and uh, that's kind of why I'm growing out the chin hair just to support him for the uh, for the NBA Finals. You know, I'm a big I'm a big Steph Curry fan. I, I like what he represents on and off the field, uh, court. Hails from Davidson College. I mean, does anyone know where that is? You know where that is? Uh, I think North Carolina. Bingo. I knew where it was the whole time. <laughs> All right. I want to wrap it up here with uh, the question I, the hard-hitting question of the day. If you were going to go out one night with some friends and you happen to run by a lovely establishment that has karaoke, what is your go-to song? I'd have to say All My Life by Casey and JoJo. Oh, one of man. my favorite songs of all time. You just serenade all the women in there and you don't even know it. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> serenaded my wife with it on our wedding. That was our first dance song. Okay. And I had to serenade a teammate with it back in 11 on the bus. It was one oh. of those songs I sung on the bus. So, What's the crowd favorite? I mean, we grew up, I mean, that's like middle school dance era, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like Casey and JoJo at its finest, and I don't even know if we want to give the fans a little taste of it, do we? Oh man! I promise I'll never find another lover sweeter than you, sweeter than you. Yeah, I mean yeah. we can just stop right there. No, yeah, man, <laughs> I'll get them back on the show and we'll finish the song. Maybe that's the only thing we'll do is we'll just do one banter and we'll sing the whole time. Is that all right, Rick? All right, Rick. Rick's cool, with that guys. All right, well. Uh, Thanks for coming on this wacky, weird edition of Bullpen Banter. Uh, I like to keep it that way, so I hope you had fun, man. I had a great time. Thanks for having me on. All right, and we'll see you guys next week. And now we hand it off to Aaron Goldsmith. Very excited right now to be joined via Skype by Noel Sevilla, who is the Mariners Area Scouting Supervisor for South Florida, for Puerto Rico, and also the U.S. Virgin Islands. Noel is joining us from his home in Miami, and he is the scout responsible for signing Edwin Diaz. Noel, before we talk about Edwin's phenomenal debut earlier on the homestand, can you take us back? What are your first memories of watching Edwin pitch in person? Well, uh, thanks for having me, Aaron. Uh, Wow, that was back uh, his junior year in high school. Uh, he was an underclass uh, player. Obviously, uh, we were focusing on the 2011 draft guys, and uh, and it struck my attention. You know, wiry kid, uh, live arm. Uh, he'll come and relieve. Back then, you know, you can dis- disregard that kind of talent, even though it wasn't for that year's draft. And um, one thing I want to mention to you that really struck me about him: his confidence. Uh, looseness. He really loves the game, and he was out there having fun. It's interesting you bring that up, Noel, because we we noticed that almost right away. In his debut, he had the mound presence and the composure of someone with infinitely more experience in the major leagues than he had at the time. But you're saying that you noticed that even as a junior in high school? Uh, Yes. And uh, and again, you know, you keep a mental note of... of, of the underclass guys. And by the time their year comes in... You go back to your notes and you refer to that and, you know, it feels good. It's a good good gut feel. Hey, I was right. What a sell back then. And uh, you never forget that. We continue our conversation via Skype with Noel Sevilla, the scout who signed Edwin Diaz. He's joining us from his home in Miami. Noel, Edwin is listed at about 6'3", 165 pounds. And I'm curious what his size was like when, when you first saw him because certainly the size, his physical build does not stand out immediately. Um, his draft year, he was about 6'2", pushing 6'3", soaking wet, 160. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you what, uh, that's, 
that's a powerful arm. And uh, I know uh, you heard it several times uh, throughout his pro uh, professional career. He doesn't have the most conventional delivery. But if you pay attention to the arm action, it's like playing catch with a good whip at the end, you know. So, and he had that, obviously, uh, pitching at that age back then. He had no professional instruction whatsoever. Um, there was a lot of moving parts, as we call it, uh, in his delivery. But the arm always was there. You know, the the lifeness, uh, the projection, and also the life of his fastball. That movement, that, that's one thing he, al he always had, movement on his pitches. What was his velocity like in high school compared to what we see now? Uh, he'll see 91, 93, 94. Um, There's a big tournament in the island called the Exodus Tournament. Basically, the last look before the draft from the Puerto Rican players. And uh, he came in relief. And he was teammates of uh, Berrios, Orlando Berrios, uh, Minnesota Twins pitcher. Carlos Correa, that was a dream team put together for that age. And uh, first pitch, uh, 97. You know, everybody's looking at each other. Hey, did you get that right on your gun? We had to double check with the other scouts. And uh, and obviously, the adrenaline, the, the, the importance of the tournament, uh, but he stood out. That was the fastest I saw him ever before the draft, uh, 97, but usually 91, 93. Noel, I'm very curious to learn where you were when you were watching Edwin make his debut earlier in the week and what it was like for you watching this young man who you first saw when he was a junior in high school pitch on a big league mound. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, very uh, goosebump uh, experience. Uh, I'm sitting with my wife and my three-year-old boy and we're watching it. Uh, I wasn't expecting that villa right off the gate, you know, and uh, especially the location of the pitch. You gotta, you, you can't forget that, you know, it was a perfect uh, delivery pitch. And uh, he just, his composure on the mound, he slowed, he slowed things down and and he took advantage of it. You know, it was uh, one thing. Uh, I, I just spoke to him uh, a couple of hours ago. And uh, th that's one thing he employed in double A. Last year in double A, he was pitching to miss bats. And that's, that's why he got he, he got in trouble. You know, double A guys, they're more experienced. Uh, they have a great idea at the plate, what they want to do with the pitches. So, And then the moment he started pitching to contact, he got better as the season went along. So that, that, that was the approach this year, too. Uh, pitching to contact, hit it, you know, and he did the same thing uh, the other night against Cleveland. You know, Noel, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's such an interesting point. We heard him in his postgame comments after making his Major League debut. Reporters, and I think we can all understand why, they were excited to talk to him about his first Major League strikeout, especially since it was a fastball at 100 miles an hour. But... One of Edwin's first comments was, it was great to get my first strikeout, and it was great to get my first ground ball out in the major leagues. He got two of them, both went to Seager at third base. So it sounds like, based on what you're saying, that this is a very deliberate thing for Diaz, despite his plus velocity. Uh, he wants to get ground ball, he wants to get outs on the ground as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, the fans, people think that because you're a flamethrower, you're supposed to miss, miss all the bats, strike guys out every time out. Uh, you have so, so many bullets left in your arm, you know, so you want to be uh, smart, uh, get the quick out when you need it, get the strike out when you need it, and, and that's his mentality. Can you give us an idea as to what baseball in Puerto Rico is like and its importance to the people there? We, we know so much now with the influx of talent from 
countries like the Dominican Republic, from Cuba as well. And we are seeing some very, very bright young stars. We've mentioned some of them, Francisco Lindor, Barrios, Correa as well, and now Diaz coming from Puerto Rico. Can you give us an idea as to what baseball is like there? Yeah, well, uh, growing up in Puerto Rico, especially in the in the 80s, when you had that, that influx, the Alomar brothers, Juan Gonzalez, uh, Pash Rodriguez, so forth, they used to sign as a free agent, sort of like the, the, in the Dominican and Venezuela nowadays, at 16, once you turn 16, uh, you didn't have to finish high school. And they'll sign right away and be on their way. Uh, that changed in 1989. That's when Puerto Rico became part of the draft. And, uh, and, and you, you'll notice a big reduction of major leaguers for some reason. Um, one thing I can tell you, this is my sixth year with the Seattle Mariners, uh, sixth year going to Puerto Rico. They are they're good athletes. They don't play as much baseball as in the States. I mind you, they have the, the, the great weather to do that all year round, but it doesn't work that way. Uh, they only play two games a week, usually a doubleheader over the weekend, uh, team practice. So you compare that to the, the kids in the States, especially in the, uh, in the warm states like Florida. Those guys are year round on the field. Uh, playing high school games three, five times a week, uh, team practice, individual practice. So they're more advanced on that on on that aspect. Uh, that's why you see a slow um, promotion on players signing out of Puerto Rico. Uh, however, um, Francisco Lindor, Javier Baez, those guys, they grew up in Puerto Rico, but they moved to the States after the sophomore year. So they graduated out of Florida, and uh, and and they became part of that Florida trend, you know, be on the field every day, the competition. So the more you play, the better competition you play against, the better you're going to get. And that's one thing in Puerto Rico they're lacking of, uh, the competition and the lack of games. Now, as the time we're, at the time we're recording this right now, Noel, we are a day away from the draft, less than 24 hours, in fact. What is draft day like for you? Well, it's uh, Christmas in, in June. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, we go. I'll tell you what. Personally, I don't mind driving. Uh, I have South Florida, which is half of the state south. Uh, I can go to Orlando, Melbourne, back and forth every day. That doesn't doesn't put any strain on me. The most stressful part of the year is this time of the year. Uh, you want to get the players' signability correct. Uh, make sure that this is what they really want to do. Uh, they're making a commitment. The uh, team is making a commitment with them. So we, we have to be 300% sure, hey, we're getting the, the right guy. So you got to go with your gut feel, do your homework. Well, we, we wear many hats. We're scouts, psychologists, investigators. <laughs> I'm sure you heard that, but it's true. You know, uh, it takes a lot of getting to know the player, uh, the situations, the background. That's why we do home visits in the off season. Get to know the player. You know, we go to their houses, so that's their environment. We, we, we want them to to feel comfortable, and uh, we get to see how they react. We want to know who they're gonna call when things are not going right. Their first year in pro ball. What's gonna be the uh, uh, chain of support, and and that's. You know, the, the higher and above, they can make a sound decision on who they need to take in the draft. On a yearly basis, are you writing up a report on 
hundreds of players or thousands of players? Uh, well, on the amateur side, um, it's a smaller area. So usually, in, including players from out of the area, they come to to my area. The the better ones, um, on average, I write uh, 60 to 80 reports on the amateur side. Then uh, we have a, a pro pro assignment. We cover the minor leagues in the summer for potential trades on the deadline. Uh, the deadline, and you might get five to seven teams assigned. So, seven five times twenty five players. So you get over a hundred players that you got to write in in the summer. The same thing with the major league club. We have a September uh, major league assignment. We got to see. In my case, I'm in Miami, so I see the Marlins. I sit there for five days, I scout the team, I make my my reports, my recommendations. Uh, who should we target? Yeah, there's a possibility to make a trade in the off season. Or next summer. So, yeah, so hundreds, of course, <laughs> I think so. Uh, and not only that, uh, we also, you write a lot of follow-ups in the summer. So I could write 300 follow-ups. I might end up writing only 60, 70 of them. But the follow-ups, uh, they start in the summer, and it follows you throughout the year. So you'll say, oh, this is not the same guy I saw in July. So let's move on to the next guy. But uh, it's, it's a lot of writing, no doubt about that. So you told us about how emotional you were watching Edwin Diaz make his major league debut the other day for the Mariners. Is there a player that you've been most proud of that you can pinpoint that you scouted, the Mariners signed and has made his debut, that has made you feel as on top of the world as that player? Or is, is Diaz the guy? Is he the top of the list? Uh, yeah, the Diaz, obviously, my first major leaguer. So that's always going to be special. He was, uh, he, was, are you, he was the first. He was the first player that you signed that has made it to the major leagues. Uh, correct. Well, that's congratulations. That's fantastic. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, you know what? Uh, it's more special because uh, I saw where he came from, uh, what he had to go through, uh, and it happened very quick. You know, uh, especially uh, the way we call players projects. You know, you have to wait uh, the physical maturity, the skill maturity. It takes uh, four or five years. And uh, but the, his aptitude, uh, his uh, hunger, he wanted, he wanted to do. He wanted this more than anybody in the world. I think uh, helped him to to achieve his dream quicker. Noel, this has been so enlightening, and we are so appreciative of your time, especially on the eve of the Major League Draft. We know this is about as busy of a time as it can be for a man in your line of work. We're so grateful for all your insights. Thank you so much for joining us, Noel. Well, thank you. Uh, again, uh, it's a very exciting moment, a very exciting season for us, and uh, we got plenty of time. We're going to be well when it's all said and done. Looking forward for it. See you later!